Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 8, Nahavand. Last time I covered the Muslim conquest of Persia, the Sassanids had abandoned their capital, Tesiphon, giving the Muslims access to untold riches. Both the main Sassanid army and Yasajir III retreated north. While Yasajir established a temporary headquarters in Holwan, the Sassanid army fortified itself at Jalala. Flanked on the west by the Diyala River and on the east by a series of hills, Jalala controlled access to northern Persia. Furthermore, so long as they held Jalala, the Persians would control the northern Suad. There was little doubt that a battle would happen here. Miran was appointed commander of the defense of Jalala, with Khorizad as his deputy commander. Together, the two prepared for a battle against the Muslims. Jalala was converted into a fortress, a trench was dug three miles to the south, and various fortifications were constructed behind the trench. The Sassanids scattered wooden caltrops in front of the trench. A caltrop was a small weapon made of several sharp nails that was meant to injure horses as they rode over it. The feel of caltrops was, in effect, the ancient equivalent of a minefield. Sa'd ibn Abiwakas was eager to do battle, because Tesiphon could only be secure if the Sassanids were expelled from the plains of the Su'ad. In March 637, Hashim bin Utba, Sa'd's nephew, left Tesiphon with 12,000 men. For the first time, large numbers of Persian soldiers, even some officers, were defecting to the Rashidun Caliphate. Upon arrival at Jalala, Hashim establishes camp in the south. For the next eight months, Hashim battled the Persian forces without making considerable gains. Hashim made several attempts to storm the Persian position, but each attack was repulsed. Most wooden caltrops were crushed under the weight of the horse's hooves, so the Persians manufactured iron ones instead. Miran, thinking that he had worn down the strength of the Muslim army, began to raid their positions, but all these raids were repulsed. Unable to break the stalemate, Hashim asked Saad for reinforcements, yet the 1,000 men Saad sent merely replenished the Muslims' losses. A little while later, Saad sent another 500 cavalry. By the end of November 637, the Persians were growing tired of being cooped up in Jalala, so Miran made preparations for a major attack. This was the only way to inflict a tactical defeat on the Muslims. Hashim realized what the Sassanids were doing and pulled back his army a short distance from the trench to allow the Sassanids to form up for battle. The Battle of Jalala began when the Persians launched an attack along the entire front. The Muslims were pushed back and were even in danger of breaking. However, the Sassanid attack halted and Hashim exploited this time to launch a counterattack. Shortly before sunset, according to Muslim sources, a storm darkened the land, allowing Kakab and Amr to launch a flanking movement from the Muslim left without the Sassanids noticing. The maneuver was executed flawlessly. Cut off from its base and facing two Muslim forces, the Sassanids made a mad dash back to Jalala, suffering casualties from both the caltrops and the ditch. Knowing that the Muslims would enter Jalala, the Sassanids that survived, roughly half the original army, withdrew to Holwan. But Saad wasn't waiting for the fall of Jalala to keep going. The Sassanid governor of Mosul, Intak, had gathered a sizable army and arrived at Tikrit. He ordered a trench to be dug around the eastern arc of the city. In May 637, while the Battle of Jalala was still occurring, Abdullah bin Mutim marched from Tesiphon with 5,000 men. For 40 days, Abdullah besieged the city with no success. Then, he sent agents to contact the Arab tribes in the city and promised them protection if they joined the Muslims in their fight against the Sassanids. Though the Arabs inside Tikrit did not openly agree, they refused to participate in Sassanid sallies. The Sassanids decided not to place further trust in the Arabs and, on one night, 
they secretly began evacuating the city. However, as the Muslims advanced from the east, in the west of the city, the Sassanids were attacked by their own former allies, the Arabs. Tikrit was captured, and two days later, Mosul surrendered on the condition of paying jizya. When Jalalah fell, Saad ordered Kaka to pursue the retreating Persians towards Holwan. Meanwhile, Miran and the Persians, who had survived the defeat at Jalalah, fortified the city of Kanikin, 15 miles north of Jalalah and near the present Iran-Iraq border. A few days later, Kaka arrived, and both sides prepared for battle. The Sassanids put up a strong effort, but eventually, Miran was killed and Kanikin was conquered by the Muslims. Upon hearing of Miran's defeat, Yazdegerd fled east, abandoning Holwan. Hot on his heels, Kaka arrived at the city of Khazar Shirin, defeating the Sassanids in another battle, opening the way to Holwan. After occupying Holwan, Kaka received the surrender of the city on condition of Jizya. All of Mesopotamia was now in Muslim control. Saad wanted to keep going, but he did not receive permission from Umar. Umar wrote to Saad, quote, I wish that between the Suwad and the hills there were a wall which would prevent them from getting to us and prevent us from getting to them. The fertile Suwad is sufficient for us, and I prefer the safety of the Muslims to the spoils of war." End quote. Umar hoped that the Zagros Mountains, which divided Mesopotamia from Persia, would act as a natural buffer between the Rashidun Caliphate and the remaining Sassanid territories. Starting in February 638, the Caliphate's frontier was fortified. It was during this time that the cities of Basra and Kufa were founded, and Umar appointed administrators to manage the newly acquired provinces. As Muslims moved into the area, there were many cases of Muslims marrying native Persian women. However, Umar forbade Muslim settlers from acquiring property and estates. It would not be until the reign of Uthman that the Muslims would be able to become landowners, triggering a rush to acquire property in Iraq. Despite not acquiring land, the Muslims acquired another type of prize. Yasajared's daughter, Sharan, was traveling with a convoy to Holwan after the Battle of Jalala when she was captured by Hashim bin Utba and sold into slavery. She found her way to Medina, where she was married to Ali's son Hussein. Although Umar desired peace, peace would be hard to maintain, since the Sassanid general Hormuzan initiated raids across the Zagros Mountains. But before I get back to the war, there's a bit of information that is necessary to understand. There were seven families in the Sassanid Empire that formed the highest tier of the nobility, and each of these families had a feudal overlordship over a particular region of Persia. As the head of one of these families, Hormuzan controlled the region consisting of the southern foothills over the upper Zagros Mountains, southeast of Holwan. Thus, Hormuzan's domain bordered the Rashidun Caliphate. Hormuzan conducted his raids from the city of Awaz. The districts that suffered from Hormuzan's raids, Mesan and Dast Mesan, fell under the jurisdiction of Utba bin Ghazwan, the Rashidun governor of Basra. Utba only had 800 men, so he appealed to Saad for help. Saad sent a force of unknown size under Noman bin Mukarin. Together, Utba and Noman launched a simultaneous attack that forced Hormuzan to withdraw to Awaz. Though Hormuzan was a competent general, he did not have a force large enough to take on the Muslims, so he decided to stall for time by declaring that he wished to make peace. After he negotiated with Utba, a treaty was drawn up that stipulated that Hormuzan's domain would become part of the caliphate and pay jizya. However, instead of being governed by a Muslim, it would be governed by Hormuzan. By early 639, due to a border dispute, Hormuzan broke the terms of the treaty and went to war again. However, the Muslims captured Awaz and Hormuzan withdrew to Ram Hormuz. Hormuzan took a defensive position at a place called Arbuk, but he had no intention of fighting and sued for peace. Once again, this was a deception, 
as Homerzan was playing for time while augmenting his forces. For now, though, the Muslims thought that a permanent peace was achieved. Meanwhile, a Muslim general and governor of Bahrain, Ullah bin al-Hajrami, began an adventure into Fars. Fars was a Sassanid province in what is now southern Iran, making it the closest hostile territory to Medina. As Saad ibn Abi Waqqas became commander-in-chief and won battle after battle in Iraq, Ullah grew jealous. Ullah believed that if he conquered Fars, he would win glory for himself. Ullah divided his men into three armies led by Jarud bin Muwalla, Sawar bin Hammam, and Kuleid bin Munzir. These forces arrived in Fars by sea and began heading towards Persepolis, which may have been their goal. However, they encountered a Persian force at Tawus. As the Muslims were assessing the situation, the Sassanids sent a detachment around them to destroy their vessels. The Muslims defeated the Sassanids, though the absence of boats forced them to take a coastal road back towards Basra. Along the way, they encountered another Sassanid force and were defeated. The first Islamic invasion of Fars was a fiasco. An infuriated Umar was forced to order the governor of Basra to come to the rescue. As for Ula, Umar took away Ula's position as governor of Bahrain and awarded it to Saad. In December 638 to early 639, the governor of Basra, Utbah bin Ghazwan, visited Mecca as part of the annual pilgrimage, but on his way back, he fell off his camel and died from the fall. Umar selected Utbah's deputy, Mugira bin Shuba, to fill Utbah's now vacant post. Mugira was a veteran of the battles of Yamama and al qadisiyah yet he was not exactly a perfect man. Soon after he was appointed governor, Mugira was charged with adultery and tried. Umar himself was the judge of this trial. According to Quranic law, a minimum of four separate witnesses were required to convict, and there were four separate witnesses. While the first three witnesses definitely acknowledged the event and identified the same adultery victim, the fourth failed to recognize the victim. Therefore, Mugira was acquitted. Rather than being stoned, which was the proper punishment for adultery, Mugira was merely dismissed from office. Remember Mugira, he is going to be part of the historical narrative for a while. In the meantime, though, Umar appointed a new governor of Basra, Abu Musa al-Ashari. As all this happened, Yasajard was still retreating eastwards, arriving in Isfahan. Everywhere he went, he called upon his people to resist the Muslim invaders. Over the next two years, Sassanid nobles and governors would pool their resources in creating another massive army that they hoped would once and for all repel the Muslims and would allow them to recover lost territories. Yasajard maintained constant correspondence with Hormuzan and sent him reinforcements, which was one of the reasons Hormuzan broke his treaty while he was still in Awas. Sassanid forces concentrated at Tustar and Ram Hormuz, and from there, they would launch a two-pronged attack on the Muslims in Awaz. Thanks to Muslim intelligence, Umar learned of Persian developments and decided to concentrate the forces of Basra and Kufa. But these instructions were not sent to Saad ibn Abi Waqqas, because there was a change in leadership. In Kufa, Saad had a large house built for himself that looked like a palace in the eyes of the simplistic Arabians. No doubt this would have reminded Umar of the luxurious lifestyle of Khalid ibn al-Walid. Umar ordered the front door, and only the front door, of Saad's house to be burnt down. Complaints from Kufa continued to trickle in, resulting in Umar removing Saad from command and replacing him with another companion, Amar bin Yasir. When the people of Kufa came to see Amar as incompetent, Umar had Amar replaced with Mugira bin Shuba. See? I told you Mugira would be important. Regardless of whoever was governor of Kufa, the Sassanid threat remained. Abu Musa sent Noman to deal with his biggest threat, 
Hormuzan in Ram Hormuz. Outside the city, the Sassanids were defeated, and Hormuzan was forced to abandon Ram Hormuz and retreat to Tustar. Upon arrival in Tustar, Hormuzan immediately began planning for a siege. Umar ordered reinforcements to be sent from Kufa, which gave the Muslims the numbers to tackle Hormuzan. The Muslims set up camp southeast of Tustar. The Battle of Tustar was fought in 640. Tustar was a walled city flanked on the west by the Kabrun River and contained many canals, meaning that the Sassanids had a stable water source. The most vulnerable part of Tustar was its southeastern side, but here, Hormuzan dug a trench and had it covered by Sassanid posts. Hormuzan felt confident enough to face the Muslims in open battle, so he deployed his army southeast of Tustar. However, the Sassanids were defeated and forced to retreat behind the safety of the city walls. The Muslims then besieged Tustar for several months, repelling all sallies. Then, the Sassanids prepared one massive sally, and it was defeated, and the Muslims were able to cross the trench. By now, famine had beset the city, yet Hormuzan was determined to fight until the end. What happened next was much like how the siege of Damascus concluded. One night, a Persian named Sina slipped out of Tustar and offered to show Abu Musa, who had brought reinforcements from Kufa, a way into the city. Sina led the Muslims into a sewer that discharged water into the Karun River. The following night, a small group of Muslims entered the city through the sewer and ambushed the Persians guarding the gate. The gate was opened, allowing the main Muslim army to pour in. The Persians tried desperately to stop the Muslim advance, but they failed. Hormuzan, with a hand-picked group of warriors, made a last stand in the citadel, but Hormuzan finally surrendered on the condition that Umar personally decide Hormuzan's fate. A significant number of Sassanids managed to escape to the ancient city of Susa. While the contingent from Kufa marched back to Kufa, Abu Musa marched to Susa, taking the captive Hormuzan with him. Abu Musa launched several attacks on Susa, but all failed. Then, one of the Persians who fought for the Muslims had an idea. One night, Sassanid sentries discovered a Persian lying in front of the city gates, his uniform stained with blood. The sentries opened the gates to tend to the wounded Persian. As it turned out, that Persian had merely faked being wounded and quickly disposed of the guards. Before the Persians could complete a successful defense of the gates, Abu Musa's army rushed into the breach and scattered the Persian soldiers. The Persian commander sued for peace, which Abu Musa accepted, since he wished to avoid further bloodshed. Abu Musa finished his operation by sending Aswad bin Rabia to take Jundasabur. With the fall of Jundasabur, the Muslims completed the conquest of the Sassanid province of Khuzestan, which is now located in the southwest of Iran and directly borders modern Iraq. Now whatever happened to Hormuzan? After the conquest of Khuzestan, Hormuzan was sent to Medina. The people of Medina were dazzled by his presence. After all, it was not every day that a Persian prince was in Medina. Hormuzan converted to Islam and settled down as an ordinary citizen in Medina. By annexing Khuzestan, the Rashidun Caliphate had expanded further than what Umar had planned. Once again, Umar desired peace, and once again, the Caliphate would expand even further. Yasajarid assembled another massive army that harnessed the Sassanids' remaining resources. This army was concentrated at Nahavand. Located in a hilly region, Nahavan was deemed safe from Muslim attack and could serve as a base for future Sassanid operations. A veteran general named Mardin Shah was put in command. Forward elements of the Muslim armies tracked these developments and reported them to the Caliph. In response, Umar prepared another campaign, and he chose Noman bin Mukarin to lead it. Noman had served under Khalid ibn al-Walid in his campaign up the Euphrates. In fact, Khalid relied upon Noman to administer and collect taxes. 
When Khalid was sent west, Noman continued to serve in Iraq. Saad ibn Abi Waqqas sent Noman to administer Kaskar, located on the east bank of the Tigris. Noman was also the commander of a kind of fire brigade in Kufa, and would also rush to the Basran's help whenever they were in trouble. However, Noman preferred battle to administrative duties. He wrote to Umar that instead of handling tax collection, he wanted to command any of the Muslim armies currently engaged in the conquest. Noman's prayers were answered when, in October or November 641, a letter arrived from the Caliph appointing him the commander of the campaign against Nahavand. At the same time, the Caliph issued letters to other commanders ordering them to operate under Noman. Armies from Basra and Kufa, as well as a fresh new army from Medina, would assemble to face the Sassanid juggernaut. The Muslim army started moving out before the end of 641. Although the Sassanids had 60,000 soldiers, Mordan Shah understood that he was gambling with the fate of his empire and invited the Muslims to open negotiations. The Muslims sent Mugira bin Shuba as an envoy. However, negotiations failed. By now, a small stream bed separated the Muslim and Sassanid positions. A Sassanid messenger delivered the Muslims a similar message as that before the Battle of al qadisiyah Either you cross or we will cross. Noman and his 30,000 Muslims crossed. Both the Muslim and Sassanid camps lay near the northern edge of the valley of Nahavand, which ran northwest to southeast. At the southern edge of the valley stood a massive mountain range that merged into the Zagros Mountains. Located in the center of a valley was a brown ridge that was fortified and occupied by the Sassanids. This gave the Sassanids the advantage of the high ground. In front of their forward lines, the Sassanids laid a belt of caltrops to neutralize Muslim cavalry. The Muslims deployed with Noman's brother Nuaym commanding the left, Hudayfa bin al-Yaman commanding the right, and Kaka bin Amr commanding the cavalry. The Persian wings were commanded by Zardak and Bahman, while the Persian reserve was commanded by Anushak. After the Muslims completed their midday prayers, they began the battle by advancing, but they soon suffered from withering fire by Persian archers. Many of the Muslim horses were stricken by the caltrops, yet the Muslim cavalry pressed on. Then, during the middle of the afternoon, the Muslim and Sassanid infantries collided and engaged in bloody combat until sunset, when both armies broke contact and returned to their camps. The night passed without any major incidents. The dead on both sides were buried, and the wounded were treated. On the second day, Noman decided to begin by repeating the maneuver he utilized the day before, but his frontal attack did not commence until the afternoon. The second day ended much like the first day. Both sides engaged in indecisive bloody combat until sunset, at which point both sides disengaged. No significant actions were taken during the next two days. Noman realized that his strategy during the first two days wasn't working, so he hoped that the Persians would rush forward, negating the advantages of their caltrops and position. However, the intelligent Mardan Shah refused to take the bait, since time was on his side. After two days, the Persians became too impatient and began raiding ahead of their position. These raids were effective, since when the Muslims attempted to repel the raids, the Persians simply retreated back behind the safety of their caltrops. Even worse, the Sassanids were getting reinforcements day by day, and the Muslims were suffering from the cold conditions. It became clear that the Sassanids had the initiative for now. A few days after his last unsuccessful attack, Noman held a war council composed of leading generals, companions of Muhammad, and seniors. It was clear that the Muslims needed to change their strategy. After various ideas were brought up and then met with disapproval, Tuleha suggested moving the cavalry into an outflanking position and giving the impression that the Muslim front was weak. If you remember, Tuleha was one of the apostate chiefs who rebelled in the Ridda Wars and then re-embraced Islam. 
Despite his previous animosity against the Muslims, Tuleha's plan was approved. One week after the last Muslim attack, the Sassanids heard reports that the Caliph had died. This was the best news the Sassanids received in years. One problem though, these reports were false. Still, the Sassanid morale improved, since the Sassanids reasoned that the Muslims could not keep fighting if their leader was dead. The next day, Persian scouts reported that the Muslim outposts were no longer there. In addition, they informed their superiors that the Muslims were packing up their belongings and loading their baggage onto their camels. Some Sassanids even claimed that they spotted Muslims retreating westwards. Now was the optimal time for the Sassanids to go on the offensive. Or so it seemed. Mardanshah ordered the lines of caltrops to be swept aside and for several Persian columns to march forward. Yet as the Persians are forming up in front of the caltrops, they notice the Muslims hastily deploying for battle. Ashas bin Qais was placed in command of the left wing, and Mugira bin Shuba was placed in command of the right wing. Kaka and a cavalry contingent were already placed on the far left, obscured from the Sassanids by high ground. The remaining important Muslim generals were placed to the reserve. Mardan Shah considered the Muslims as a rearguard and anticipated an easy victory, but just in case the fighting turned serious, he ordered his men to fill the gaps behind them with caltrops. About two hours before midday, the Persians advanced, and both sides began firing archery volleys against each other. As the Persian bows were deadlier and had longer range, the Muslims suffered more than the Persians. The Persians advanced closer and closer to the main Muslim line, and although many Muslims complained to Amman of his inaction, the Muslims steadied themselves. Then, sometime after midday, Numan ordered his line to advance. Shortly afterwards, Kaka and his cavalry group broke cover and rushed forward. Flanked on their right, many Sassanids perished at the hands of the Muslim warriors. Numan, mounted on his horse, personally led the attack against the Sassanid center. For hours, the Sassanids desperately tried to prevent their formation from breaking, but they were retreating closer to the caltrops. Suddenly, Noman was struck in his side by an arrow, and then his horse slipped in the mud and fell, taking Noman with it. Noman was unconscious, but it was clear that he was dying. His brothers covered him with his cloak to conceal with what had just happened. Nuaim, Noman's brother, took up the Muslim standard and began commanding the Muslims in Noman's absence. The Sassanids put up a valiant resistance, but by sunset, the Sassanid front broke into pieces. The Sassanids were more focused on the Muslim pursuit than the caltrops behind them, which, of course, were their own obstacles. The Sassanids became disorganized, and Mardan Shah was killed. Under the Muslims' new commander, Hudayfa bin al-Yaman, the Muslims continued to pursue the Sassanids into the night. Though the Muslims won another decisive victory, they lost a series of important commanders, including Noman, who I already mentioned before, and Tuleha. Upon learning that Noman was dead, Umar broke down into tears. The following morning, Hudayfa continued the pursuit, and he had not traveled far when he encountered a Sassanid force deployed for battle at the small town of Darizid, seven miles from Nahavand. Hudayfa deployed his army for attack, but as his front line came into contact with the Persians, the Persians turned and hastily retreated. This was actually only part of the army under Dinar, the new Sassanid commander. Dinar hoped to gain a bit of time in order to prepare for a stubborn defense of Nahavand itself. After a siege that lasted a few days, Dinar offered to surrender unconditionally, and after this was accepted by Hudayfa, the inhabitants of Nahavand laid down their arms. The Muslims were allowed to plunder the city, after which the inhabitants agreed to pay jizya. That signaled the end of the Battle of Nahavand fought from December 641 to January 642. Almost half of the Sassanid army was killed. 
This battle was so impressive that Umar gave his veterans a pension of 2,000 dirhams, which was the same value given to veterans of al Qadisiyah. There was still a significant Persian force in the nearby town of Hamadan. As Hudayfa learned about this, he sent an advance column under Nuwain bin Mukarin and Kaka bin Amr. This column moved faster than the Sassanids and caught up with the Sassanid rear in the outskirts of Hamadan. A large Sassanid baggage train was captured by the Muslims prior to various Muslim detachments being placed around the city's perimeter. But hardly had the Muslims settled into their positions when the Sassanid commander of Hamadan surrendered and agreed to pay jizya. The Muslims withdrew to Nahavand, leaving Khazar Shanam, the Sassanid governor of Hamadan, in his post, but under Muslim authority. After the Battle of Nahavand, the fall of the Sassanid Empire was essentially a foregone conclusion. However, the Muslims' work was hardly finished, since they needed to consolidate their holdings. After the Battle of Nahavand, Umar realized that his empire's occupation of Persia was permanent, and as part of this realization, he instituted new political and military policies. The first change regarded the acquisition of property in Iraq. Previously, Umar forbade Muslims from becoming landed gentry, but for now, Umar encouraged migration into the conquered territories. The second change regarded the military situation in Persia itself. Previous campaigns began only after the Muslims took a defensive stance. Now, Umar realized that the only way to ensure the safety of both Iraq and the Muslims in Iraq was to go on the offensive. The most adjacent regions hostile to the caliphate were Fars in the south, Azerbaijan in the north, and the region around Isfahan in the center. These three locations formed the next strategic objectives, but Umar was unsure where to proceed. Umar consulted Hormuzan about the matter, and Hormuzan replied by comparing Isfahan to a head and Fars and Azerbaijan to wings. Umar adopted Hormuzan's advice to start with the head. A few months after the Battle of Nahavand, an army led by Abdullah bin Uthman marched from Nahavand directly towards Isfahan. Some distance ahead of the city, the Muslim advance guard encountered a Persian detachment and drove it back in a hard-fought action. The Muslims arrived and occupied all of Isfahan except for Jay, which was located on the outer part of Isfahan to the east of the city. The Muslims forced the defenders into the fortified part of the city and besieged it. After a few weeks, as the siege was still in progress, two more Muslim groups led by Anaf bin Qais and Abu Musa joined Abdullah. Around the same time as these groups arrived, the Sassanid commander, Fazuzfan, offered to decide the issue by a winner-take-all single combat with the Muslim commander. Abdullah agreed, and though both commanders clashed, Fazuzfan informed Abdullah that he was a good man and agreed to surrender Isfahan. After the fall of Isfahan, Abu Musa marched north, and in accordance with the caliph's orders, he took Kashand and Qum. Starting in late November 642, Nuwain bin Mukarin, brother of the victor at Nahavand, began the next phase of the campaign by marching towards the city of Ray. Along the way, Nuwain received news that the city of Hamadan, which had been captured after the Battle of Nahavand, had revolted, so Nuwain had to besiege the city a second time. After several days, the city surrendered once again. Then, at a place called Wajruz, Nuwain came across a large Persian army commanded by Isfandiar, brother of the late Rostam. After a particularly bloody battle, the Persians were scattered, some towards Rey and some towards Azerbaijan. After sacking Wajruz, Nuwaym moved to Rey, which was heavily defended. However, the Muslims cunningly found their way inside the city and sacked it. After Rey surrendered and agreed to pay Jizya, Nuwaym established Rey as his forward operating base. With the capture of Rey, the Persian north was severed from the Persian south meaning that the Muslims could shift their attention to their wings. 
As the newly appointed governor of Kufa, Mugira bin Shuba was tasked with preparing the invasion of Azerbaijan. Hudayfa bin Al-Yaman was appointed by the caliph to command this theater. After Ray fell, Nuaym sent a detachment to assist Hudayfa, and then the campaign was launched. Hudayfa captured Zanjan and marched to Ardabil, which surrendered on terms. After making significant inroads into Azerbaijan, Hudayfa was recalled by Umar and replaced with Utba bin Farkan, who successfully completed the campaign. Two down, one to go. The conquest of Azerbaijan was still in its infancy when the third campaign, directed against the south of Persia, was initiated. Assured that Azerbaijan would fall easily, the Muslims decided that penetrating as deep as possible was necessary in order to prevent another large Sassanid army from assembling. Recall that the first Muslim invasion of Fars did not go in the Muslims' favor. In 643, Uthman bin Abi al-As picked up where the Muslims left off. This time, the Muslims were more successful, capturing Shiraz, Persepolis, and later Fasa and Darab. The conquest of Fars opened the possibility of invading more provinces. The first province was Kerman, which was invaded by Suhail bin Adi. He was faced on Kerman's frontier by a small Persian army, but it was defeated and scattered. Suhail proceeded to occupy the rest of the province without major trouble. The next province to be attacked was Sistan, and Asim bin Amr, veteran of many campaigns in Iraq, was appointed to accomplish this task. After defeating a Persian force on the border of Sistan, Asim went on to besiege Zaranj. The siege did not last long before Zaranj surrendered. The final southern province left was Makran, located in the far east of the Sassanid Empire and bordered Sindh, a state that led into India. Umar formed a strong corps under Hakam bin Amr, and after Hakam marched to Makran, he encountered a force led by King Razul of the Sindh, marking the first contact between Muslims and Indians, even though it was hostile. Once again, the Muslims scored a victory and the Indians retreated back to Sindh. All of southern Persia was now in Muslim hands. Only one region of the Sassanid Empire was not conquered yet, Khorasan, which roughly corresponds to northern Iran and Turkmenistan today. Umar appointed Anaf bin Qais to lead the campaign into Khorasan. Anaf had taken part in the siege of Isfahan, and it was from Isfahan where Anaf began his campaign. Rather than head towards the obvious target, the city of Nishapur, Anaf traveled across inhospitable deserts and headed for Herat, perhaps the easternmost Sassanid city. The Sassanids put up a stiff resistance, but they were defeated and Herat eventually opened its gates. Leaving a garrison at Herat, Anaf turned around to subjugate Nishapur and Tus. Then, the Muslims turned north towards perhaps the last major Sassanid city left, Merv. Yasajarid had successfully fled to Merv prior to Muslim advances into Persia, yet the Muslims were still coming, so Yasajarid was forced to escape to the city of Balk. Anaf proceeded to occupy Merv without opposition. Luckily for Yazdegerd, Anaf stopped at Merv to await the arrival of reinforcements from Kufa. A few weeks later, Anaf entered Bactria, located east of Khorasan. Bactria, with its capital at Balk, was perhaps the most remote province of the Sassanid Empire and was never really integrated. Yazdegerd was able to pull together one last Sassanid army consisting of warriors from the region of Transoxiana, but it was annihilated by the Muslims and forced to withdraw across the Oxus River, which the Muslims renamed the Amudarya. In classical antiquity, the Oxus River marked the eastern boundary of Alexander the Great's empire, and it would serve as the Caliphate's eastern boundary too. In fact, Umar explicitly ordered Anaf never to cross the Oxus under any circumstances. After the Muslims entered Balkh peacefully, Anaf made a pact with the local inhabitants before turning back to Merv. By the year 644, the borders of the Rashidun Caliphate stretched from modern-day Libya to Afghanistan. 
With the conquest of Persia, the Muslims acquired vast quantities of wealth and captives. Back in Medina, everyone was happy. Well, almost everyone. There was a Persian named Firoz who was taken captive by the Muslims at Nehevend. Since Firoz was previously taken into slavery by the Byzantines, this second misfortune in Firoz's life must have been extremely humiliating. Firoz was said to have mourned his misfortune with a bitter comment, quote, Umar has eaten my heart, end quote. Firoz was purchased by Mugira bin Shuba, the governor of Kufa, yet Firoz somehow made it to Medina. Firoz was a Christian who was recognized for his engineering skills. He earned money in Medina, but according to the customs of his time, he had to pay two dirhams per day to his master. Although this amount was very little, it fueled his hatred towards Muslims. Firoz decided to consult the caliph about this matter. Umar informed Firoz that the tax was not that high. On the next day, a local rabbi informed Umar that he would be dead in the next three days, apparently citing the Torah as his evidence. Three days later, which occurred in late October 644, Umar went to the local mosque to lead the dawn prayer. As Umar was conducting the prayers, Firoz emerged from the crowd and rushed at the caliph with a dagger, stabbing him in the belly six times. After the last blow, Umar collapsed to the floor. A nearby Muslim, Kuleib bin Abi Amr, grappled with Firoz, but he was stabbed and mortally wounded. Firoz ran out of the mosque, killing six Muslims who pursued him before committing suicide. However, the damage was already done. Umar's stabbed wounds proved fatal. After asking someone else to complete the dawn prayer, Umar was carried to his house. Two or three days later, in November 2nd or 3rd, 644, Islam's second caliph passed away. Umar's son Abdullah chose to ignore his father's model of justice and ordered the execution of Firoz's wife and Firoz's daughter. Even Hormuzan, who had converted to Islam, was not spared. Umar's ten-year reign was marked by prosperity and triumph. The decisive victories of Yarmouk, Al-Qadizia, and Nehavand all occurred during his reign. This paved the way for the conquest of Byzantine Syria and Egypt and the eventual annihilation of the Sassanid Empire. Umar's political reforms transformed the Rashidun Caliphate into an efficient state. In addition, Umar's social reforms and religious tolerance ensured that the needs of all of his citizens would be provided for. In my opinion, Umar should go down as one of the greatest world leaders of all time. But the age of Umar had passed. Next time, another caliph would be selected, and the unity that was so prevalent during the reigns of Abu Bakr and Umar would unravel, sowing the seeds for civil war. 